Now, some people like ads, some people don't, and that's okay. But we like to keep everyone happy. So if you're one of the people who doesn't like to listen to ads, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can listen to this podcast just the way you like it. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. It is mid-summer. Most people are going on holidays. Dublin Airport, I suspect, is going to be a nightmare in the next week as you are... Where are you, John? I am in France. I am in the Pyrenees, marching up and down You're marching up and down the mountains. Villa and, and Yevgeny Prokosian, is he in the front of the car? <laughs> I kicked him out on our last vineyard. He's right. Uh, okay. He he's now he's, he's he's quaffing Saint Emilion as we speak. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like a proper Russian. Well, the south of France is full of Russians. It is. It is. And, absolutely. And you know, the interesting thing it was always full of Russians. Not a new thing. Yeah. All the way going back to the czars, the south of France has been the preferred place for looted Russian cash. <laughs> An actual fact. Do you remember I was telling you about Muro, the 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 yeah. head of the Bank of France last week, right? Yeah. Yeah. The French, Muro got into a massive problem, right, with Russia because France, not only did Russians come to France, but the French invested so much in Russia, right? Did they? They, invest, they invested tens of billions of francs in Russia before the arrival of the communists. And of course, in 1923, the communists said, we're not paying you back. Oh, and France were, experienced a massive thing. What, what were they investing in? They were investing in railways, John. Right? right, okay. So you know the city, oh, we're going on a big pear shape here, we're going on a big yeah. one. Okay, but while we're here, right? Yeah, yeah. The city of Odessa. Yeah. Now in Ukraine. Yeah. People think Odessa is a very ancient, ancient city, right? Because there was evidence of Greek settlers around the times of ancient Greek. Mm. But the actual city of Odessa was only really built in about 1825, started. Okay. And it was a new city that was going to give the Russians access to the Black Sea. Not Sebastopol, but a commercial city. And of course, why the Russians wanted access to the Black Sea was because when they took over Ukraine, they realized that Ukraine was the breadbasket. And if mm. they could get wheat out of Ukraine and from the steppes of Russia, out through Odessa, 
and out they could create a massive, massive agricultural exporting country. Right. But they needed trains to do this, railways. And of course, they didn't have their own financing or they didn't decide not to. So the biggest emerging market, you know, maybe you hear that emerging market idea. Yeah. The biggest emerging market before the First World War was Imperial Russia, right? Right. And the biggest investor was France. Biggest single investor was France because the French were in a historic alliance with Russia. Remember I told you that Germany has always been isolated by France and Russia and Britain in an alliance, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically it was in a military, political, geostrategic and financial alliance between France and Russia. And of course what happened then was that when the Russians defaulted, the people who took the hit were the French in right. the main. And that's why the French went into the Great Depression in a totally neurotic state because they're already, their middle class had already been defaulted on okay, by the Russians. Okay, 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 right. These are the bizarre things you learn on this. And, uh, and what, what were the Romanovs? What was their role in, in all the this? Romanovs Cause, cause were, at, the at Romanovs were... At that stage, they, they were holding all the purse strings. Not only were they holding purse strings, they owned the serfs in... Well, I mean, at yeah. first there was the liberation of the serfs in yeah. 1860, but in general it was, it was, it was still very much a, a mad aristocratic venture. Yeah. So the Romanovs were getting a few quid every time a train was laid. Why? Because they were the single biggest landowners. So think about what happens right, when yes. you, in those countries, right, there was a great scam. The same thing happened in the American Midwest, right, which is you would have this extraordinary tract of land, which was agricultural, right? Mm. But the way in which you increased the value of the land was you built a railway through it, right? So by building a railway through it, you dramatically increased the value of the land. So that meant that the people who owned the land, the Romanovs, right, yeah. were quids in. So they started to sell down their land all the time as they were building the railways because they were making a fortune. Yeah. But the problem was that the more and more land they sold, the more and more wheat came into the global supply chain yeah. and the lower the general global price of wheat. So what you had this bizarre situation where the landowners were getting richer, but the actual farmers, the peasants, were getting poorer. Okay, right? all right, because okay. Because the global price of wheat is set globally. Yeah. So that this this is one of the untold stories of the Russian Revolution, yeah. which was that deep down it was the farmers who were getting poorer. Mm. So they were ripe for revolution. So we always think of the revolution as being an urban phenomenon. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was also an extraordinary rural part of it as yeah. well. And the reason was the following, the Russian landlords were getting rich, but the farmers were getting poor. Mm. But of course, the farmers who owned a little bit of land, not the peasant farmers, the kulaks, who were largely Ukrainians, mm. got quite rich. And of course, this allowed the Bolsheviks to say to the peasants, those kulaks, those guys who own land, mm. they're the problem. And that precipitated the what they know now, what the Ukrainians call the Holomodor, which is the great Ukrainian famine. Yes. which was orchestrated by and Stop. engineered by the Bolsheviks. Yeah. You know, so but, mad but, stuff. But, but it's interesting, though, because, I mean, and it's a topic that we come back to again and again is the whole idea of land and land ownership and the value of land and how that creates this huge disparity between haves and have-nots and the insiders and the outsiders yeah. and, and all that. That's what we're going to talk about today. Insiders and outsiders. I see what you did there, John. That is... <laughs> Worth your weight in gold is this man, because I want to talk about the notion of insiders and outsiders. Right. Because 
what I want to talk about in this podcast here is why in a country like Ireland, which is, so most economic and political analysis hinges on the following relationship. Mm. If the economy is doing well, if people are employed, if wages are rising, if opportunities are evident, right? Typically, the society should be politically stable, yeah. right? It should be politically kind of boring, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Ireland, we have... Like Swiss, Swiss boring. Swiss boring, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Cuckoo clock's boring, right? <laughs> Everyone just goes skiing. Or yeah, yeah. Cheese with loads of holes in it, boring. Now, so in Ireland, we have the society's the richest it's ever been. Unemployment's the lowest it's ever been. There's been more people working in this country than there ever has been before, right? Mm. Growth rate is stronger than it's ever been. Opportunities ostensibly are there for everybody. But the country's pissed off. The country's angry. Yeah. And the people want change and they want radical change, right? So the question is, why is this? Because it goes against all what we understand of deep political economy and analysis, right? And I think it's on the point of insiders and outsiders, right? Just yeah. what you said there. So explain this idea of, of, of insiders, insiders and, and outsiders. outsiders. So you might remember years ago, I did a one-man show in I the do. Peacock, right? In fact, Mac, I went to see it twice. It was so it was, good, it was, or it was so shy. <laughs> It was, was so shy. The first time. It was so shy. Just, Jesus, there must be better than that. I'll give him a second chance. I'll give the poor fucker a second chance. Anyway, the premise, and it was called Outsiders. Yeah. So the premise of that was we were coming out of the Celtic Tiger crash. Everybody, lots of people were bankrupt. Lots of people were angry, rightly. And the economy was going nowhere. And emigration was starting again, or had, had started again. And I thought at the time that the coming battle in Ireland mm. wouldn't be between left and right or urban and rural or conservative and liberal, as had been the case in the mm. past, yeah. but would be between insiders and outsiders. And insiders were the sort of people that could be on the left or the right, but what really defined them was they had a stake, they had an access to power, they had some way of expressing right. their disappointment, their frustration with the society. So they could be on the left, so they could be like members of a trade union. So through the trade union, they can affect policy, right? Or they could be on the right. I was actually thinking quite interestingly about RTE this week, right? Yeah, yeah, So the yeah. trade unions in RTE are incredibly powerful on the basis that they're on the news all the time. Oh, man, I tell you. Yeah, yeah. we worked in there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The work to rules yeah. are outrageous. But but it, can I just say one thing, just you, about the RT thing? Of course you can. And I'm not going to go on about it because we're sick to death. RT is it. going to be the trump of this year with you. Oh. Like, and another thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I've been glued to it. But it's boiling my blood, as I said before. But the one thing about RTE, in the context of insiders and outsiders, when you worked in, we worked in the broadcasting media field, RTE as a whole was always seen as the insider kind of yeah, organization. Absolutely. But in RT there's there's insiders and of the insiders, insi yes. Inside the feckin' organization. I know, I know, I know. I remember remember I was presenting that afternoon chat show, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and and because we were trying to cut costs, we were actually doing four shows in two days. Yeah. And you'd be chatting away to somebody and you'd turn to look at the camera and the camera was gone. <laughs> because really of the gone? tea break time. Oh, yeah. Right? So the whole thing was the yeah. whole studio and you can't, was like, run by the, and there, so that's the reason. Yeah. So that's that what I would call left-wing insiders. Yeah. So work to rules, trade unions. Oh yeah, you, you, you run the show. RT was was notorious for. I can tell you stories about that, but and I won't then, bore you. And then you have right-wing insiders who'd be like your man Noel Kelly, yeah. the agent 
for his people. Yes. Right? He's going to, but they're both insiders because both have access to power yeah. and they have access to government funding. So that would be, and you can talk about that throughout but the But that's economy. why the Eroctus the committee hearings going live had such a huge viewership, exactly. a massive view. They were shown in pubs even, it, you because know. Because it, it shed light on this disparity between the insiders, yeah. which is, in this case, the presenters, the senior management in, in that place, right? Mm. And the outsiders. So outsiders are people who feel that they've been left behind. Mm. They feel on the outside. And they too can be young or old or right and left. So you can have a small shopkeeper in Ireland feels they're on the outside. You can have a tattooed barista feels they're on the outside. What they don't have is access to power. They don't have a way in which they can express themselves. So they feel... They're called the left behinds in certain countries, but they might not necessarily be left behind. They're just on the outside. Yeah. So what you see is that it's very interesting. Shaheen Valley, when he's talking about France to us last week, yeah. said that elites have an amazing way of reproducing themselves no matter what the democratic system is. Right. So we think that a democratic system means that the people are at the centre, that the power resides with the people, with the democratic will of the people. But I would say no. Democracy is just a veil. What we have in effect is spectator democracy. Yeah. So it's a bit like gladiators. Yeah. That's do I, certainly what Do it I feels not like. entertain you? Yeah. Are you not entertained? Yeah. Right? So every four or five years, we give the thumbs up or thumbs down to some geezer. Yeah. And then we go on with our business. So yeah. we, we, we're spectators in the democracy. And this is why the PAC Commission has been so interesting, because it shows you what happens when you shine a light at the insiders. Absolutely. And the, and the thing is that, you know, Shaheen was talking about the elite in France, but Angie Binder in Germany was talking about the industrial aristocracy. aristocracy. Insiders Same again. kind of thing. But w- what is interesting here is because the PAC, Sean Light and RTE, a lot of Joe Soaps are just going, hang on a second, what about other public bodies? What's exactly. going on there? And, like HSC, for instance. Well, and, and, and it's just it's exactly like the age, and we're going to come on to those characters, mm, right? Mm. But so I think what is happening is in the old days, we used to have left versus right. And yeah. we used to have conservative versus liberal. And we used to have urban versus rural. And you kind of slotted into those things, right? Now I think you have insiders versus outsiders, but the political system hasn't figured out or grasped a way to express this, right? So when you get a scandal of public money, what the outsiders feel naturally is they're looking on a soap opera, but they're not part of it. But because they're taxpayers, they're paying the bill, Yeah, right? So they get the bill for all this carry-on. And then they look at the insiders, and when you see, when you look forensically at it, what you see is constant waste of public money all the time. What I would call a highly cavalier attitude to other people's money. Yeah. And when you're on the inside, you have reinforced the, what I would say, the foundations so significantly that you don't even care. Right? And this is what is coming out. Right? So when the politicians are saying to them, so you paid this, that and the other, right? Now you're absolutely right to say RTE is chicken feed to what's going on and coming down the tracks, right? Yeah. But if you put in your head this idea of insiders and outsiders. Now, when I was writing that thing in 2010, I thought, like, this is the way to look at the world, right? Mm. 
And of course, like any big idea, you can pick holes in it and there's things that didn't work. But as a way of looking at what transpired in the teens, so from 2010 to 2020, you know, Trump, populism and Brexit and the rise of Sinn Féin here, these things that came apparently out of nowhere, right? What they all have in common, the gel between all of these, is that they are movements that appeal to the outsiders. Sinn Féin appeals to people who feel we don't have a stake. Mm. Trump, we don't have a stake. Brexit, we don't have a stake. And the thing about these people, and this is where the elites and the insiders have to worry, is these outsiders might not have a stake, but they have a vote. Yeah. And it's when the spectator democracy on that four or five year cycle, we put our thumbs up or down to somebody, when that becomes hijacked by the outsiders, as looks increasingly the case here, then people say, where did that come from? Yeah, yeah. And what you're right in saying is that comes from an underlying anger about certain things. And one of those things is the cavalier spending of public money. And it's a real sense of that fellow has all the cash. I don't have it. And I have no way of negotiating and I have no way of affecting change other than voting for the radical solution. Yeah. And so if you think about Ireland, right, this week we are going to have the National Children's Hospital. Okay, this is back to your HSC, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'll just give you, right, it was supposed to be costing 790 million. Yeah. This is about 10 years ago. The most recent estimate is 1.73 billion. And reports suggest it could go as high as 2.2 billion to build a hospital. Mm. Now, I'll give you a reference point. In Helsinki, Finland, which is a kind of higher standard of living than we are, is building a new children's hospital for 150 million. Right. Copenhagen. Is it comparable in size? Yes. Copenhagen, 350 million. Edinburgh, 210 million. So, what is happening is a profound lack of anybody caring for the public purse. Yeah. And the public yeah. purse is our purse. And that's what pisses people off. But but here's the thing that, I mean, it's their job, okay? It mightn't be the... Oh, politi- you sound like Roy Keane. It's your job. <laughs> but it, it's like, you know, the politicians, you can understand to a point that they're not expert procurement no, they're not. officers or they're not necessarily accountants or whatever. Largely, they're they're lawyers and teachers. School teachers, yeah. But that's what the civil service is about. Exactly. And the civil servants are the ones who are supposed to have the expertise. So does the book not... It should stop with stop the senior with civil servants. Like, yeah. But something else is going on. I'll give you another case. Go on, case, go on, right? go on. Think about Metrolink, right? Yeah, Metrolink yeah. begins in 2002 when the project of creating a metro was going to cost 2.4 billion in this country. Recently, the Public Accounts Committee in April said the most likely cost of the construction of the latest incarnation of the metro will be 9.5 billion. So this is from 2.4 to 9.5, right? At a time when inflation was rising at about 2% per year. So... If it was in line with inflation, that's about 40%, would the overrun would have gone from 2.4 billion to about 3.5 billion. Yeah. Actually, even less, for about 3, 3.1 billion. But it's gone from not to 9.5. Now, somebody's getting this money. Yeah. Right? Somebody's getting this money. The most credible estimate now 
of capital, right? Like, just, just imagine this, imagine this. Some have said that this could eventually cost as much as 20 billion. Something from two to 20 billion. Two. That's... Now, the thing is that somebody gets this money. Yeah, yeah. Now, who yeah. gets this money? Well, who does get this money? And another interesting thing I want to come back to is in the podcast is the government in this country, civil servants, have outsourced competence to the big four consultancy companies. Yeah. In many cases, they are negotiating as part of the state team, but they're not the state. Yeah. So what you have... And they've got massive fees as well. They've got massive fees. So who's making the money on this, right? We could go through the St. Luke's Hospital, University Hospital in Galway, you know, Clonburris Post-Primary School, St. Angela's College, Our Lady of Lures Hospital, Drogheda, all these things. There's loads yeah. of these examples, right? But at every stage, what you have is civil servants who are supposed to be negotiating on our behalf have no sense of proprietary over the money. Mm. It's as if, don't worry, there's just an ATM and the ATM is the people, right? So we just go in and take money out. Now, who gains, like in a big, in a big construction, let's say, project like a hospital, who gains? Well, of course, the major construction companies. Yeah. That's the yeah. first one. Yeah. All the professional advisors, all the consultants, all the insiders. So you're back to people who have an access to power, Yeah. right? Whereas the outsider is the taxpayer who's sitting there thinking, man, this is my money. Exactly. This is my money. But he has no avenue to express his outrage apart from fucking Liveline and Joe Duffy and la la and at the ballot box. Yeah. So they say, people ask me outside, why are Sinn Féin doing so well? You guys have loads of money. The economy is going well. It's because Sinn Féin appeal to the guy left outside, yeah. to you know the ordinary Joe who's outside. And this, I think, is what's actually, it's a good explanation of what's going on in the society. But Ireland actually isn't unique. I mean, it's really easy to kind of be Ireland bashing and going, oh, we're all shiting, but we can't do kind of mega projects. I mean, there are mega projects yeah, that go over. around, yeah, uh, that do go over. They tend yeah. to, but, but we seem to... <laughs> have a particular penchant for, for going way over. But let's talk about that after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
So, John, what I was saying about the mega projects, right? What I'm trying to explain in my own head first is why we have, at a time of extraordinary abundance, mm. a radical party emerging as by far the biggest in the state. That's the key. What is it that people are so angry about? Yeah. There's no doubt it's housing. There's no doubt it's transport. There's lots of things. But I think what we're seeing at these PAC things is also part of it, the insiders and the outsiders, right? Now, the first thing to appreciate is that it seems where you look, you see this all over the place. So, for example, take an agency of the state called the judiciary. Yeah. Lawyers will say that there are separation of powers. We know all that. You don't lecture us on that. Yeah, we know it. But the judiciary is part of the state apparatus. And then you look at, for example, claims, mm. awards, insurance awards, what people get for falling down the stairs in this country, vis-a-vis <laughs> yeah, yeah, what yeah. they get in other countries. And you see that claims in Ireland are way out of whack. And then you have to ask the question, well, who sets the claims, right? Who actually awards these claims? And these claims are awarded by judges yeah. who come up with a figure. Now, all this is changing. There's reform of the law. But just think of the idea. And then you think, well, who benefits most from claims? Obviously, the legal profession, the personal injury profession, mm. because a barrister and a solicitor get a certain percentage of the cases, obviously, yeah. and they get some of the money. Yeah. So it is in the interest of the judge to look after their mates, not in their interest, but they could do this, right? I'm not saying it's happening. I'm just saying it's the logical conclusion, what yeah. we're seeing. And they keep the awards up, which keeps their mates in houses in West Cork in the summer, which are very expensive. Now, your average Joe sees this and says, someone or some fella, after 10 pints, falls down the jacks of a bar and gets 10 grand. Yeah. And they're saying, I hear. Right? Who's at fault? The person who falls down. Yeah. Right? And we also know that we have incredibly high insurance premiums as a result. And we also know that the person who pays for the insider game of awarding very, very high awards, so the legal profession make a fortune, is your average Joe who's paying a higher premium. Mm. But because there's thousands and hundreds of thousands of average Joes who are all paying a little small premium, you might not necessarily be able to say, well, he's losing out. Mm, mm, yeah. But we know who's winning. So it's this sort of situation where you can almost say, ah, oh, well, nobody's really losing. But absolutely the case, somebody is really losing because somebody pays at the end. And it's fascinating to hear some retired judges, they always say, well, you know, Oh, there was, I was, there was some retired high court judge there about two years ago uh, giving a speech and he was talking, well, I don't think the insurance companies will pass on any sort of cost savings we give them, so we're not going to do it. He also went on to say it's really? incredibly important to have, yeah, it's incredibly important to have a highly functioning and efficient legal system, right? So yeah. what he's basically saying is I'm going to protect the legal system. And you know, if the average Joe has to pick up the tab, that's fine. And I'm going to blame the insurance companies. Mm. So the legal profession fought the personal injuries guidelines, right? Yeah. Because the personal injury guidelines came in two years ago and what they did three years ago and what they were, they said they were putting the cap on all this. Mm. So prior to this, they were making that, the insiders were making that, but they fought this. And you know that 
Average awards and personal injury claims since the introduction of the personal injury guidelines are down 42% compared to 2020. So it means that the judiciary were giving out these claims to their mates. So yeah. when they, it's not nobody's actually complaining. They're like, oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah. So there was just they were just creaming off the top, and that money was going to some of their and this friends. This is happening all over, and it's no wonder there's this kind of growing resentment and and anger from the general public. What is happening is, you can do this once and that's fine. You can do it twice and it's fine. But it's the incremental buildup of what looks to everybody to be one section, a minority section, Mm. making out over the other. And what looks to be the case that democracy, although it promises that each citizen has a stake and each citizen has a right, that elites, insider elites in democracies, tend to find ways, this is the key thing, to find ways to maintain their status. Well, isn't isn't it, I mean, you were talking about democracy and the rise of Sinn Féin, for instance. Yeah, because as a, people as a are, radical party. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but then what happens is, and we're on this five-year general election cycle. The spectator course, democracy cycle. Exactly. And, and you know. I can see you as, now in it. I can see you in a toga. Toga, toga. The gladiators are fighting and John is thumbs up or thumbs down. Emperor I. Claudius over there. But, but in year four of this cycle, you always see the big bonanza giveaway, you know, from the politicians. Well, essentially but particularly buying, now when, buying we, when, we have, when we have huge surpluses, yeah. right? So you're absolutely right. So more and more money gets funneled in through the state apparatus to buy votes, to neuter the arguments of the other side, etc. right? And that's what we're going into now. If you pull back the lens completely and you say, what is it that angers people? It seems very clear to me that one of the things that really angers people is this insider-outsider thing. And then what has made the RTE thing so inflammatory is it has exposed on our TVs the insider-outsider idea. Mm. And what I think has really landed with people is having watched that stuff over two weeks, right, is it's not really the individual's. It's the system is set up. that's exactly it. So the system is set up to protect the insiders and the system is set up to gouge the outsiders. And then we disguise it with these expressions like left and right. And where are you on, you know, liberal or conservative or, you know, are you you representing rural communities or urban communities? That's all horseshit. That's Mm. only a smokescreen to disguise the real issue which is between insiders and outsiders. And that is what the election's all going to be about. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. 
only from Rustolium. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.